very concerns that are on Jesus' heart. And it's been a great time together. I've really enjoyed fellowshipping over the pages of this scripture and this prayer to find out those very priorities of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, in like manner as Jesus taught us to pray and as he modeled it so beautifully for us, Lord, we we come, Father, and pray that the lessons that we have learned, the ones that we'll learn today and the lessons in the past several weeks would be very meaningful to us on a daily basis. As we walk in fellowship with our Lord that called us, I pray, Lord, that our relationship with you would be very real, very exciting. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Speak to our lives. You love us, Lord, with an everlasting love, and we want to come closer into contact with you through the pages of Scripture. We ask that the Holy Spirit would come now and make these things very tender and real to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year my wife and I receive a little personal planner, a a calendar, a diary, that's put out by Youth with a Mission. It's a spiritual calendar. It's sort of like a regular day timer where you write in your appointments throughout the week and things that are going on in the month, but then it's got a way that you can pray more effectively. And there's a little section in the opening paragraph on intercessory prayer. And it opens up by saying, Have you ever had an individual's name come to your mind? Someone that you had not thought of for a while? Maybe you felt your heart grieved about the state of a nation that you have never seen. Or maybe you have wept without words over the realization of the sins of your own country. Perhaps the Holy Spirit has been trying to get you to intercede for a person or a nation. Have you ever had that experience where something comes to mind? It's sort of unshakable. You might say the Lord has laid it on your heart. That's what Christians usually say when those things sort of weigh on their minds or their hearts heavily. They think, I wonder if God's trying to get my attention. If He wants me to pray about this, talk to Him about this. To put this on my prayer list. Now, I usually work off a prayer list. I usually write things down during the week to pray for, simply because I space out very readily. I have what you might say is spiritual ADD, attention deficit disorder. I might be praying and then just, I'm out into a whole different line of thinking and I have to write it down just to stay on target. So on Sunday I pray for certain things. On Monday and Tuesday I spread out my concerns through the week, as well as individuals and issues that are on my heart. I'll write them down and then I'll pray about them. Now, what's on your prayer list? Who's blessed enough to have you talk to God about them? It's estimated by Newsweek that 78% of Americans pray weekly and 58% pray daily. I guess I would ask, what do you pray about? What's on the prayer list? What are the things that you're really concerned about? There was a little girl who attended a church service. It was the first time she ever had the experience of being in the formal church assembly. She'd gone to Sunday school and she prayed with her friends, but this was formal, this was hush, it was sort of a... uh, It was a wedding, actually. And the minister said, let us pray. And everybody bowed their heads 
toward the earth and closed their eyes. To her, she didn't know what was going on. She just looked around and saw that everybody's heads were bowed to the ground. And she said, Grandma, what are they looking for? Good question. In prayer, what are you looking for? What are your goals? If you had your prayers answered, what would those answers look like? What would they be? Because you will pray about whatever's the most important to you. Whatever your priorities in life are, those are the things that will be in your prayer list. The great thing about this prayer is that this is Jesus' prayer list. These are the things that concern Him for His church. Let's look at the text as we finish the chapter, beginning in verse 20. It's the third phase of this prayer. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. First of all, verse 20 tells us the scope of Jesus' concern. He's praying now for everyone. His scope is broadened out to include all the world. Now, you've seen something in this prayer, I think, so far. This is not a haphazard prayer. What I mean by that is that Jesus didn't just walk along and have little things come to his mind and go, oh, by the way, God, and oh, yeah, before I forget, let me tack this on. In fact, this prayer is easily outlined. It's very organized. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. He prays that the Father would restore to him the glory that he had with the Father before the world ever was. Then in verse 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the twelve disciples, or those immediate followers. And he prays basically for two things for these twelve guys. Number one, that they'd be kept from the influences of the evil world. And number two, that they would be sanctified. We discussed that last time. Be made holy. Now in verse 20, through the end of the chapter, the scope broadens out to include you. You're on Jesus' prayer list. All believers of all times. For he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now to me, there's nothing more exciting to know that Jesus put me on his prayer list. Because I'm one of these people. And so are you, if you are a Christian this morning, who has believed in Jesus, and you're following Him because of the testimony that's been passed down from the disciples until our time. Furthermore, this prayer is exclusive. Jesus prays, notice, for Himself, for His disciples, and then He prays for future believers. He never prays for the world. In fact, look back with me at verse 9. We sort of skipped over this, but let's just look at it. I pray for them them being the twelve, the followers. 
during that time. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now that's interesting. It's very exclusive, isn't it? Jesus says, I don't pray for the world. I am praying for the disciples. In fact, Jesus never prayed for the world in his entire ministry, except once on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. You say, well, that's kind of cruel. It's kind of mean. No, it's not. Listen, Jesus died for the world. That's the ultimate act of love. The praying he leaves for us. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, I desire that you continually make prayers and supplications and thanksgiving for all men, for kings, for those who are in authority, that we might live a peaceable life. Jesus died for them. Jesus prays for us. We are left in the world of salt and light to pray for the world and win them to Christ. Also, as Jesus prays in verse 20, we understand something very important about the mind of God and that He is sovereign and that He elects. Because here's Jesus 2,000 years ago looking through time in the future. And He's anticipating people who will come to faith in Him through the testimony of other people. When He says this, it's an interesting construction in the original language. Your Bible might say, uh, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe. But actually, in the original language, it's present tense. It actually should be written, I pray for those which believe. Present tense. Which believe. The idea is, though Jesus looks to the future, for those who will come, who haven't even been born yet, He speaks as if they already believe. Present tense. In His sovereignty, He knows those who will respond to Him. He knew the very day of your salvation, even before you were born. He knew how it would happen. He arranged the circumstances for you to hear the gospel. The time when you repented, He knew all about that. And here, before the fact happens, He speaks in the future as though it already has happened. His sovereignty. Now some of you this morning may not have received the gospel yet. You're sort of hardened to the things of Christ. Oh, you've come to church. You've sort of put up with the person who begged you to come this morning. But you haven't given in yet. But Jesus Christ knows the day that you will. He knows the message that you will hear. Or the tract that you will receive. Or that friend who will share a message perhaps today. Perhaps in a week or so. It will bring you to your senses for you to respond. Not only that, but this verse teaches us the importance of giving the message of the gospel to others. Think of it. They're going to believe through the message. Or you might say, in fact, it's literally, it should be uh, translated through the agency of their conversation and their preaching. In other words, the twelve disciples, they're going to pass it down to people in Antioch and in Jerusalem and in Rome and in Greece, and then they're going to pass it down to a few, and they'll pass it down to a few, and eventually, way out there in 1994 or 1995, there's a group of people out in Albuquerque who are going to believe through the message handed down. I call this trickle-down evangelism. (laughs) It began with a few, it was passed to a few, it was passed to others, now it's in our lap. And what does that mean? It means that we have the baton of evangelism. It ought not to stop here. We should, oh, I rejoice, I'm a Christian who was passed down. Now I can just go my merry way. No, now you can pass it to somebody else and tell others that message. 
And as you tell others that message, it will have an effect in their lives, and they will spread it until the Lord Jesus comes again. That's our legacy. That's what we're called to do. And if we do everything else but that, then we haven't done enough. We failed in our legacy. We might do nice humanitarian things. We might send medical teams to Bosnia. We might send people over to these areas to give shoeboxes, and those are all fine things. We ought to do them. And we can get involved politically and make a stand for this and that, but if we don't preach the gospel in that, we failed. We need to give the message of Jesus Christ to other people because that will change their life. Everything else won't, but that will. Somebody once said, Give a man a dollar and you'll cheer his heart. Give a man a dream, you'll challenge his heart. Give him Christ You'll change his heart. That's what we're called to do. That's what the disciples did. That's the legacy that Jesus sees as he looks through history. Now let's look at the scheme of his concern. The scope of his concern is for all believers. The scheme of his concern, or what he prayed for, are two things. He prays for unity now and glory later. He prays that we'll all be one, even, Father, as you and I are one, And then he says in verse 24, Now I pray that the people that are going to follow me will be with me where I am. Those two things, that's the scheme of Jesus' concern as he closes out this prayer. First of all, for unity. That they will be one as you, Father, and I are one. Jesus made a prediction 2,000 years ago. He said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a glorious promise. And because of that promise, I'm not worried about the gates of hell. But I'm worried that the church is self-destructing. I think a lot of times we turn problems in on ourselves, and we divide from each other. And instead of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we walk away going, I was right in my argument, and I won it. And I made that person feel humiliated. God bless me. There was an old saint in Scotland. During a church service, he was scribbling on paper, writing things. Obviously, the message must have been boring. Every now and then, somebody will come up and say, Hey, look what I wrote. I wrote a poem during your message. Or I I drew this picture. I go, Oh, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. The Scottish man wrote a short little poem during a message, and the janitor found it afterward, opened it up. And the man said, To dwell above with those we love will certainly be glory. But to dwell below with those we know, now that's a different story. (laughs) It's not easy to have unity among believers. And we find that out, being a family of God, there are differences between us, and sometimes that unity is difficult. Now, what does Jesus mean? That they may be one. He doesn't mean organizational unity. How do I know that? Just read the first few chapters of the book of Acts. Talk about a disorganized group of people. From a human standpoint, the early church was very disorganized. 
20,000 people, it's estimated, belonging to this local church, without really defined pastors, without uh, a New Testament, without uh, nursery workers, without a nursery, for that matter, without cops leading them into the parking lot. They had nothing, no structure, no board of directors. They just had Jesus. And every now and then somebody will come and sentimentally say, oh, wouldn't it be great if there were no denominations and we were all one and we could all meet in one big building? It would be pandemonium if we did that. And that's not the idea that Jesus is speaking of. In fact, history records what happens when people try to organize centrally the entire body of Christ. Constantine tried that. And it was eventually totally organized in Europe by the Middle Ages. They had one central person over one central church and they tried to completely bring in all the strength under the banner of that one organization. What happened? Was the church strong? Was the church pure? Anything but. It was strong outwardly. It was weak and corrupt inwardly. It's not the unity that Jesus is speaking of. Nor does unity mean uniformity. Why is it that we think everybody has to think exactly like we think or we can't have fellowship with them? Cookie-cutter Christians don't make effective ones. There's a lot of latitude in the Christian faith. In any family, there are differences. You've noticed this. You can have four kids. They're all entirely different. Very different. One might be outspoken. One might be soft-spoken. One has one personality, one has the other personality, but they all under the same roof. Does one brother say to his other brother, You don't agree with me. Thus, I'm leaving. Hey, we're all part of the same family. We might have spats and disagreements, but we're still brothers and sisters. Here's my point. Christians will not always agree on everything. We ought to just get that straight and live with it. It's okay. Every point of doctrine we won't agree on. Every view of eschatology we, we won't hold. Some are pre-tribulationists. Some are post-hosties. <laughs> They're kind of looking forward to the tribulation for some reason. Some are fuzzy fundamentalists. Others are kooky charismatics. But we're all called to be part of the same body of Christ. Some are Calvinists, some are Arminians. Some prefer stained glass windows and high church music. Others are wild. And there's every different brand in between. And you know what? I thank God for all of the other churches in all the communities across this land and this world. Some who like it wild, and they like to roll, and they like to get up and dance, and others like it somber. And, they, and they ha I'm glad they're there. If, if this was the only place in town, then they'd all come here. And I'm glad that there are differences so that people can go and worship. It doesn't matter where you worship. It means it matters that you worship the true God in spirit and in truth. That's what really matters. If it's any consolation to you, even the early church didn't get along in what we would imagine as pristine unity. How many times... Do you hear people say, we've got to get back to the church of Acts. We need a pure church like the early church. Listen, the early church was not a pure church. They had mega problems. 
They had a doctrinal dispute about works and grace in Acts chapter 15. They had cultural wars between the Greeks and the Hebrews in Acts chapter 6. Barnabas and Paul had such a heated argument about missionary work that they split company. Paul rebuked Peter for his hypocrisy in Antioch. We want to be just like the early church. I think we are. (laughs) Now, we're never going to always agree on everything. That's unrealistic. If two people agree exactly on everything, what have I been thinking? St. Augustine put it greatly. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, there are essentials. And there are points that you draw the line and you say, I will not have fellowship with you. The Bible teaches that. There's no such thing as sloppy agape. That's not true love. If somebody spreads false doctrine or is divisive or spreads error, and it's over an essential issue, we part company with them. There's a time where you say, this is biblical and orthodox, that's heretical and cultish. There is a time for that. The Bible says in Jude 3, contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But then, then we must embrace Christians who agree on the essentials. But we may vary on the non-essentials. Do you baptize forward or backwards? Or do you sprinkle? Doesn't matter. You can dive off a diving board. It doesn't matter. Those are non-essentials. Are you pre, mid, or post? Doesn't matter. We can talk about it. We can discuss it. We can disagree. But then love must prevail. And the issue on the heart of Jesus Christ is not that the church wouldn't have any disagreement. The idea is that they wouldn't have any dissension or strife. Let me give an example of what not to do. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here we get a negative example. It's good for us to read it so that we don't fall into the same trap, and yet I fear in some cases we do. The church at Corinth was a church that was split in many different directions. In verse 10, after introductory words, Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now there's something you don't want, contentions. The word in Greek means to take a garment and rip it up in little pieces. Well, what's happening? Well, there's four, actually three men, three human personalities that were in Corinth, that ministered in Corinth. They were three preachers. And people were sort of gravitating and having personality cults around different preachers. Instead of saying, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, they'd say, I'm a Paul. You're what? Well, he's okay, but I'm of Apollos. He's the real spiritual teacher here. Really? Well, I like to tune into Peter on the radio. He's really where I get my, my meat, my food. He's the guy I listen to. He's the one, and no one else. His doctrine is pure. Look at the next verse. Now, I say this to each of you. And I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. That's Peter. 
or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now you can hear the arguments. Paul was a man of the city. He was very cosmopolitan. He was very intellectual and he spoke to the Gentiles. And so people thought, you know, I like his style. He's not just confined to the Jews, though being a Jew, he speaks to us Gentiles. And he's very intellectual. He really, uh, uh, it's whatever Paul says. I belong to the first church of Paul on the second corner of the street. That's the name of my church. Well, I'm of Apollos. He, he speaks better than Paul. Paul's short and he has speech problems. And Oh, but Apollos, he is a real preacher. Golden-mouthed orator. Others said, ah, but Peter, you know, Peter's earthy. He's blue-collar, a fisherman from Galilee. I can relate to him. He's one of us. He pounds the pulpit like a fisherman. And besides that, he was first generation. He was with Jesus. He was actually one of the twelve. Paul wasn't. Apollos wasn't. There was a fourth group. I think they were the worst group of all. They were the real snobs. They said, I'm of Christ. And what they were saying in the context of this is, I don't need any human person to identify with. I don't need any local church. It's just me and Jesus. Christ speaks directly to me. And they were dividing the body of Christ. Paul says, was Paul, says, was, was Paul crucified for you? Baptized in the name of these guys? It's better to say, I'm a Christian. Yeah, we have differences. We like that speaker or this one. But we're all one. Christians. Please, don't leave here saying, I'm a Calvary Chapelite. How about I'm a Christian? I love Jesus. That's really what, that's who you should be identified with. I'm not the head of this church. The pastor down the street isn't the head of another church. Christ is the head of his church. And we are under shepherds. There was a visitor to a mental institution. He was a little bit frightened, noticing that there was one guard guarding a hundred inmates. And the visitor went up to the guard and said, Aren't you a little bit scared that these guys are going to rebel, get their heads together and overthrow you, escape? The guard, in a very relaxed manner, smiled and goes, Listen, the reason they're here is for their very inability to get their heads together and work cooperatively together. That's why they're here. It's very suggestive. There's a point in that. If we say we preach the gospel... If we do it without unity of the body, that's insane. Because the message of the cross is that the blood of Jesus Christ washes away all sins, tears down every barrier and every wall, and makes us one family together. There's one Lord. There's one baptism. There's one faith. That's what the scripture says. That's Jesus' prayer. The scope is for all believers. The scheme is for unity. And the second request, however, is... Notice here is for future glory. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Unity in the present, and secondly, glory in the future. As I was reading this verse this week, I thought, you know, that's the best description of heaven I've ever found. People often say, what's heaven going to be like? And we can show them the book of Revelation and some of the figures that it speaks about. But by and large, there's a lot we don't know. But the best description of heaven is, it's where Jesus is. Lord, I pray that they would be with me where I am. 
Well, where is heaven? It doesn't matter. Well, there are going to be gold streets, I hope. It doesn't matter. You're going to be with Jesus, the one that you've prayed to and true all of your life, the one you've read about. You're going to be face-to-face with Him, and you're going to see Him in glory. Now, in one sense, we're already with Him, or I should say, He's with us. He said, wherever two or three gather in my name, what? He'd be in their midst. He fellowship with us. He said, individually, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He promised to be with us. But we will be with Him in the full, ultimate sense at the end of this life, when we're with Him in heaven. I want them to see the glory. Literally, it's present tense, that they will keep on beholding, continually seeing my glory throughout the ages. Now that's something Moses prayed for. Remember Moses said, Lord, show me your glory at Mount Sinai. That was his prayer. Which always intrigued me, because I thought, you know, if anybody had enough spiritual phenomena, it was Mo. He watched an entire body of water part, and he walked through on dry ground. I mean, that's okay, that's pretty good. I've never had that experience. That'd be enough for me. He saw a bush burn but not being consumed, and God speaking through the bush. I've never had that experience. I don't know that I ever would. But he had it. He saw manna fall from heaven. Every morning he'd get up. He saw so many supernatural things, but it wasn't enough. He said, I want to see your glory. I want to see your face. I want to be ultimately, totally with you. In the New Testament, the believers asked the same thing. It was Philip who said, Jesus, just show us the Father. If you do that, we'll be happy. Well, I bet you would. It's what everybody wants. And Peter, James, and John saw a preview of coming attractions, didn't they, on the Mount of Transfiguration? They saw Jesus transfigured before them. Incidentally, with Moses, the one who wanted to see his glory with him. But it was very short-lived. It was like a commercial of heaven. This is what's coming. Now it's over. But that's been the desire of people who follow God through the ages. One day in your future, this prayer will be answered. One day in the future, you'll be in heaven. And all of the things that stole your attention on this earth will be fleeting memories of Memories at all. And when you see Him, and you see His glory, you will immediately be changed. For it says in 1 John chapter 3, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. The glory of Jesus Christ that you will behold in the future will be so immense, so all-consuming, that it will totally eradicate every electric bill known to man. That's right. It says in the book of Revelation of the glory of the Lamb, and the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. I pray they get along now. I pray for the future when they're with me in heaven. Moses wanted more. Philip wanted more. Peter, James, and John saw it, but then it went away, and I'm sure they wanted more. They weren't totally satisfied. You and I won't be totally satisfied until you see God face to face. And I think that's important because a lot of times we crave right now an experience with God. I want to experience God more and more. Your appetite is wet. If you have a meaningful worship experience, if you come in and you feel God speak to your heart, you feel a supernatural touch in your quiet time, you go, oh man, that was, that was awesome. 
The worship was so awesome. But are you satisfied? After that, do you go, I don't need it anymore. I'm satisfied. No, you, you seek to recreate and capture that again. I submit to you that the purpose of worship is not to satisfy you on earth. It's to whet your appetite for heaven. Because you'll never be totally satisfied until you're face-to-face with God. Then, wow, ultimate satisfaction. Look at it this way. If you've ever traveled away from your family, you carry with yourself a picture, right? Hopefully you do, of your children or your wife or your husband. If you miss them, if you're away for a week or so, you take out the picture, you see their face. Are you totally satisfied with that flat rectangle with their face on it? You phone home and say, I'm not coming home anymore. I'm going to live in this hotel room with your picture. I'm satisfied. It's been nice. No, the photograph creates within you the desire to get back in fellowship, back together. You call on the phone. It helps, but all that does is whet your appetite to hear that person's voice as you're looking at their face. One day you'll see the face of God and you'll be totally satisfied. Until that time, everything's meant to whet your appetite. When you get to heaven, that's where life is really going to get good. Oh, okay, we have good times now. But we're talking in glory. The Bible says in Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And when you see Him in glory, and as I said, you'll be changed, you will also be glorified. Daniel, remember as we covered the last chapter of that book, says those who are wise will shine forever and ever, better than any lotion, facelift, or anything else. You will shine eternally in God's glory. A couple years ago, I went to a hospital here in town. A woman was dying. She had a debilitating disease. She was on her last leg. As I'm walking down the hallway to the hospital, I'm thinking, all the scriptures I can say, if I can just turn her thoughts toward heaven and give her hope. I didn't know what kind of a state she'd be in. I didn't know what kind of a walk she was having with the Lord. I walked in that room, and I was totally surprised. The atmosphere of heaven was already there. She sat me down, had her Bible open, and she preached to me. I walked out of there just going, wow. That was edifying. She was going home and she knew it. She said, I'm going to see Jesus' face pretty soon. I'll get there before you get there. I'll show you around when you come. (laughs) There were two women one time that were dying in the same city in the same evening. Just to show you the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian facing death, how different it is. As one was dying, the non-believer was mournful and weeping and she was saying, I'm leaving home, I'm leaving home. The Christian on the other side of town had a smile. She's saying, I'm going home. I'm going home. Lord, I pray that those that are here on earth will be one and that they'll see my glory forever. Now, the last two verses are the sum of his concern. He sort of wraps up the whole prayer for his twelve and for us, the other believers, by saying, O righteous Father, the world has not known you. But I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. 
the sum of his whole concern, if you want to wrap up the whole prayer of Jesus Christ for us, it would be that we would experience God's love to the extent that we show it to each other and that the world would take a notice of it and go, wow, I guess these people really follow God because look at them, they're full of love. That's the ironclad evidence. Jesus didn't say, all men shall know you're my disciples by the doctrine that you hold. Though we should hold pure doctrine, the Bible speaks to that. But all men will know that you're his disciples, not by the fact that you speak in tongues or that you worship louder than anybody else or that you do anything except love. And doesn't it make sense that Christians ought to be the most loving people on the face of planet Earth? Why? Because the Bible says the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And yet, with this tremendous capacity for love, how many couples do you know, even Christian couples, who experience a rich, deep, growing, genuine love in their marriage? How many children and parents do you know that experience a real, deep, genuine love and affection that could only be deemed as Christian love? How many friends do you know have such intimate, close relationships with each other that they can totally lean upon each other and express their love? I know many men. You say, you know, I love you. They go, whoa. Hey, don't tell me that. That's kind of girly thing to do. A lot of guys don't have close friends that really love them. My love is in them, Father. I want them to show it. You see, Jesus is the head of the church. He's the boss. The Holy Spirit, I see as the nervous system of the church. He takes the orders of the head, Jesus, conveys them to me and to you, all the members of the body, and says, now do your job and get along together like a body should. And what's the circulatory system of that body? Love. Love should be flowing through our veins at all times. Now I think that the prayers of Jesus interface. He prays for unity now and glory forever. I think they go hand in hand, don't you? Think about it. If you're going to spend forever with each other, shouldn't you get along now? Sometimes I hear a couple say, Well, we've been married for five years. Seems like an eternity. It's going to be an eternity, pal. You're going to be in heaven together forever. All of us are. Now, that does not mean that we tolerate evil. That's not love. If we see evil in our midst, we're to discern it. We're to eradicate it. We're to confront it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be loving. We don't tolerate false doctrine. That wouldn't be love either. But, though we can disagree, and though we can eradicate evil... We're part of the family and we ought to love each other. That should prevail. Before we close, I just want to say how honored I am to pastor this church because people, when they visit here, notice your love, your commitment, your genuine affection for each other and for Jesus Christ. I have heard that more times than probably any other thing in regards to this fellowship by visitors who write me or by pastors who come and speakers who come. They go, hey, when can I speak at your place again? I just love the people. They're so alive, so responsive. It's an honor to be a part of this fellowship. The encouragement is just keep it up. Don't rest on your laurels. Let's keep it up. Let's be devoted to each other in love. For the world will never know, as they ought to know, who we follow. I want to conclude with a story by Lauren Cunningham. He wrote it in a newsletter some time back. It's a very touching story, and it speaks to this point. He said, There was a young man returning from war. When he got to his home country, he called his mother long distance. They were excited to hear each other's voice. It had been a long time, 
As they talked for a while, eventually the young man said to his mother, Mom, I have my best friend in the whole world. I want to bring him home with me. He saved my life. He's one of my buddies out in the field. And when a hand grenade was thrown into our foxhole, he was wounded, saving my life. As a result, he continued tentatively, he has only one eye, one arm, one leg. He doesn't have any family, Mom, except ours. I told him that he can come home with me. I'd like your permission for him to come home and be part of our family. Live with us from now on, can he? His voice trailed off, anxiously awaiting her reply. You, you bring him home, son. In a few days, we'll be able to find a place for him. I know a place that he'll be happy. I'm so anxious to see you, she said, trying hard to hold back the tears that were welling up in her eyes. But mom, he pleaded, I want him to come home and be a part of our family, not to go anywhere else, to live with us. Son, you're so young, she reasoned. It'd be all right for a short time, but after a while, we'd get tired of always having to care for him. But you can bring him home for three or four weeks. During that time, we'll find him a place. You understand, don't you? Yeah, I think I do. They said their goodbyes. They hung up. The mother was excited that she would see her son in a few days. But the next day, a government official stopped at the home of the mother with tragic news. Her son had taken his own life. The mother was obviously shocked and perplexed and wondered how this could have happened. In a few days, the body's son arrived in their hometown, numb with grief. She went to view the body of her precious son. She looked into the coffin and understood he had only one eye, one arm, and one leg. He had tested her love, and her love had fallen short Having become crippled, he no longer felt he had any value. You know how valuable you are to God? You know how valuable all the people in the world are to God? He loved the world that he gave his only son. The only way they're going to know that they're of any value is by you showing them and telling them that. You know how many Christians in the body of Christ feel beat up? No value? I'm no good for anything? When at the same time, God loves them so deeply, and God, through repentance, wants to change their being, put them on their feet, and then use them for His glory. We ought to be in the business of showing the love of Jesus Christ to all of those people who feel cast out in the church and out of the church. That's the sum of Jesus' concern. Let's pray. Father, Jesus so often spoke of the love that the Father had for the Son as well as the love He has for the world. You called us to be in the world, not of the world. You said that while we're here, that we ought to tell other people about You and be sent into this world to pray for other people, to love other people, to love the body of Christ so that people will know that the love of God is a real thing that they can experience. And Lord, I pray for those today who've come In their lives, they're so beat up and so far off, they really don't understand your love for them. They're so filled with guilt, they feel ostracized and put out. Lord, I pray that you would show to them your love for them. Lord, I pray that we would show your love to them. I pray that as a body of believers, not only in this particular fellowship, but in this town, in this country, in this world, 
that your church would, as Augustine said, in, in things essential, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity or love. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name.